Welcome to Purpose 360. I'm Carol Cohn. And I'm Chris Noble. And we're on a journey to explore the brightest and most innovative minds and initiatives in social purpose. Today, companies and brands must stand for something meaningful. They have to have a social purpose and bring that purpose forward to their employees, their customers, and their community. Each episode, we're talking to leaders at Fortune 100 companies, global brands, social enterprise startups, NGOs, and everything in between. We'll be taking a deep dive to learn how they are integrating purpose into their organizations. To benefit both business and society for enduring impact. Join us. Welcome to Purpose 360. I'm Carol Cohn, and today we have a marvelous show. With us is Tayu, and she is Senior Vice President of Corporate Affairs, Corporate Social Responsibility and Sustainability at Cisco. And once you listen to this incredible podcast, you will agree with me that she is one of the rock stars of our entire field. So welcome, Tay. Thank you. It's good to be here. So under Tay's leadership, Corporate Affairs strives to inspire, connect, and invest in global problem solvers to nurture innovative solutions and catalyze an entrepreneurial ecosystem that supports progress and inclusive growth. I always like to talk about our guests' companies um, by the numbers. So let's give a few. Cisco was founded in 1984. The company has over 74,000 employees in 274 offices in 96 countries around the globe. The market cap of the company is north of $240 billion. That's with a B. But there are other great numbers I would like to talk about. And these are related to Cisco and corporate social responsibility. In 2018, they served 209 million people benefited from grants to NGOs. The company also gave over 383 million in cash and in-kind services around the globe to various social NGOs and social enterprises. They also had a 45% drop in their greenhouse gases. They drew 82% of their global electricity from renewable sources, and they've also won amazing awards. They're listed as number two in Barron's annual list of the most sustainable U.S. companies in 2019. They're listed as number 19 in Indeed's national list of best places to work in 2019, and they placed number three in Fortune's list of best workplaces for giving back in 2018. There's about another 20 great awards um, that I can mention, but I'd really like to get into our conversation. And I bet, I hope you're blushing just a little, Tay. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Um, Tay, you've been with Cisco for nearly 30 years. That's an incredible and meaningful tenure. Can you share a bit about how your role has evolved as the company has grown? 
So thank you for, first of all, thank you for ha- having me on your show. Um, over a 30 year span, I was fortunate enough to be here when we were, uh, you know, just out of the start, barely out of the startup phase. And when you're in a company, when you're that small, you have an opportunity to, to do a lot of different roles and really understand the customer, the business that you're in, the, the changes in the market, and you could actually affect change in all those areas. So over the years, uh, one of the most important things that I've learned to do is understand how to scale. Uh, because you, you know, and, and all of us have started that way as specialists in something we, the, the whole goal is to be the best at what you can be, that thing that you're an expert. And um, over time, though, as a company or an organization grows, it's really important that we figure out how to scale that. Uh, learn how to bring new people on and build systems that last and can enable you to have a far, a bigger and much more impactful reach. Over the, the 30 years, I'm sure that you saw the evolution of Cisco's purpose. Um, can you talk about how the company defines its purpose and then how it's integrated into your culture? So there's a there's a, a simple way to do it, which is to uh, share with you. I'm sure you've seen it, but our our whole brand campaign brand campaign around you know being a bridge between hope and possible. But the reality of it is is that at our core, we've we've always solved problems for our customers and our partners. Uh, we're in the business of connecting people, and we only do well as a company if we get positive outcomes for our customers and partners and shareholders. So those are the tenants and that has not changed. What has changed is, is how we articulate it and apply it to a bunch of different areas that we may be focused on. Can you talk about the journey of as you were growing and you were scaling, how you began to approach um, people, planet, as well as the profit of the company? So a couple things. I was fortunate enough to to be in, uh, you know, the... Uh the business for the the first half of my career. And with that, I had a very solid um, grounding in the business, which enables us to really think about, you know, CSR and the integration of it with the business. Um, And I think that people have always thought that uh, being purpose-driven and profit-driven were mutually exclusive, but they're not. You actually, one actually lives and, 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 you know, and contributes to the others. So there's actually data now when you see, look at what um, the Professor Cotter and Heskett at, uh, at HBS did is they did a study over an entire decade and they have um, come to the conclusion that purposeful value-driven companies actually outperform their counterparts in stock price by a factor of 12. Uh, so what has changed, I think, in this space is that there is research happening so people can actually get data and use that data to further their mission. Um, and, you know, the, the other one that I thought was kind of interesting is the Holmes report uh, where they said 83% of professional investors are more inclined to invest in the stock of a company if it's well known for its social responsibility. So it's not just uh, people like us who are, you know, driven by this, but also it, there's, you know, investors who are looking at this. There are um, business schools who are studying this, and uh, that's been fantastic. The other thing that we've seen 
firsthand at Cisco is uh, it mirrors the, the 2016 Cone Communications. Uh, they do the employee engagement study, and they found that 58% of employees consider a company's social responsibility commitments when they decide where to work. And we've seen this over and over again, but now it's, it's much more, the data is out there, uh, and we've seen it with the people who come to work at Cisco. That's terrific. So I would like to congratulate you because this morning, um, as you know, the business roundtable statement um, on the purpose of a corporation was released. (laughs) And of course, Chuck Robbins, your chairman and CEO, he was one of over 170 CEOs that signed that unbelievably, you know, I, I tweeted this morning and I said, I've I'm amazed. I've waited 30 years for this announcement. So 20 years ago, the Business Roundtable adopted a statement of corporate purpose that pretty much mirrored what Milton Friedman had said. The goal of a corporation is to serve its shareholders, period. You know, obey the law, of course, but its principal responsibility uh, was to shareholders. What you're seeing now is a restatement of that corporate purpose. It's not enough just to serve shareholders. They need to be focused on a broader array of stakeholders, their employees, their customers, but also the communities in which those people operate. Because if you don't have healthy communities uh, for your uh, employees and your customers, you're not going to have a healthy company. What can they do to help fix some of the problems that our society is, is, is showing right now? How did you feel? I'm sure that you knew this was coming and I'm sure you talked to um, your CEO about it. What do you feel when, you know, this statement comes out, you know, from the business roundtable, Fortune magazine is interviewing key CEOs. What do you think about that and and the impact that's going to have on others who may not be as prescient as Cisco? So I, I think that the expectations of companies have changed. I think uh, when you look back at the uh, the second half of the last uh, last century, uh, there was a pervasive feeling that a co- companies or a corporation's purpose, business's purpose, is to uh, employ people and focus on the business. You know, you've heard Milton Friedman's uh, focus that bi- the business of business is business, right? And I think that that has evolved. The expectations have changed. Uh, and the reality is, is that it may be a business world, but business is comprised of lots of humans. And we all have the same common interests in terms of opportunities, growth, security, uh, the, the strength and well-being and health of a community, uh, making sure that where employees live and work and our customers live and work uh, are able to thrive. And ultimately, all of these things holistically uh, add up to very solid, healthy business environments. So the two of them are integrated. Um, and I get very excited. And, and CEOs have always, I'm not saying every CEO, but many CEOs have always known this. And they have uh, ensured that companies do focus on the social aspects as well as the more technical aspects of, of running a business. And I think that uh, it's something that's come of age. And I'm very excited about the leadership of, of our CEO, Chuck Robbins, in, in being so vocal and uh, proactive in this space. And so how did that make you feel? Fabulous. 
Uh, you know, it, it, it just, it just opens up so many opportunities and it really gives you optimism and, um, you know, a, a very optimistic view of what the, the future could hold, enabling so many companies to really focus on key issues that, that we're all very concerned about, but making it a business imperative. Yes, I, I know that um, in uh, when Alan Murray was doing his video commentary um, today, he interviewed one of the CEOs and they said the most important skill is human centered. It wasn't the technical skill. It's like, how do people understand each other and drive towards a common goal? And then the other comment today was that change is not happening fast enough and that the trust gap is widening and that all people deserve to be supported, you know, not just the 1%. So I would love to um, thank you for your optimism. I'm very optimistic. I've been smiling all day long. So let's go back to Cisco because you've known about this, about the power of corporate social responsibility that's authentic to impact the business and impact um, your stakeholders, not just shareholders. Was there a tipping point at which CSR became part of Cisco's business strategy? Well, I think that, you know, Cisco, we, we, we've had this uh, program called the Network Academy program, which you're probably familiar with. Uh, and, and Oh, I've known for many, and, many and years. And that, that yes. is in over 180 countries. And so uh, can I share a story with you? Absolutely. We love stories. I was asked by our um, general manager in East Africa to come out there and meet with some customers. And uh, he said, I know you want to go visit academies and see all the universities and everything, but can, you know, can you come and talk to some of the public sector leaders as well? And what was really beautiful about this was, is that, you know, their concern is about their people. It's about the health and well-being of their citizens in their country. And one of the most important components is that their citizens can actually be, uh, be able to acquire and adapt to changing economic and technological changes that were happening and that they could actually get the jobs that will be thrown off by the digital revolution. Uh, and if you think about the networking academy, we were actually in sub-Saharan Africa with the network academy before Cisco actually had a commercial presence there. Because our goal is that if you're global everywhere and you're a global institution, our employees are made up of locals as much as possible. And it was so important for us that the local economy is held up by locals who are working in that uh, in that sector. Uh, and that would enable us to ensure uh, sustainability as a company, because it would mean that there was a thriving uh, pool of talent, uh, that any, you know, any commercial entity is only as good as the people who are in it. Um, and it's not just for Cisco, but it's for all of, you know, the public sector, the NGO sector there, um, you know, our customers, all of that holistically. So uh, we saw this happening uh, quite early. And then Cisco took on a major initiative uh, around country digitization uh, to ensure that we could be supportive of a country's digital transformation. Uh, and, you know, Network Academy is right there front and center with them uh, because we're teaching networking skills uh, that are not tied to necessarily Cisco products. 
you saw the eureka early and and the commitment and the ties. Um, did you have challenges with some of your business unit leaders who were saying, no, no, this is just philanthropy and it should be over on the side. I really need to sell more um, Cisco products. Um, not, no, uh, I think that it wasn't just me. The reality is, is that really um, solid, business leaders actually look at the big picture and they know cause and effect and they can actually connect the dots. So I never had anyone say this should be out on the side. Uh, Sometimes you get challenged because people are just unknowing. So my challenge was to get the message out. It wasn't because people weren't open to listening to it. So when you have 70,000 employees and a huge ecosystem of partners and, you know, and customers, that's where uh, that the, the work is really in the communications more than it is in, in actually getting them to adopt it. Uh, and a case in point is that we also had customers who were, um, we had customers who were actually uh, asking us about what are you doing in certain areas, particularly around uh, sustainability. So uh, it was all converging together. This is something that is just to be. And how can you peg some of the years when this when this transformation was taking place? I'm just curious in the uh, life cycle of uh, CSR. So we were actually working uh, in the U.S. with school systems. So the Network Academy program was started in 1996. So this is when we went from a knowledge, you know, we were going from an industrial-based economy very much into a knowledge-based economy. Uh, And now we're in the digital economy. But as this um, transition was happening, uh, we realized that there was a need and an opportunity for for skilling people in, you know, networking, because that's what we were, that's what we're focused on. And other companies also had other training programs that were aligned to their core competencies. Uh, and what we found was that um, as you drove the Network Academy program, we were able to partner with the UN um, in in various countries with various uh, international development agencies who were all quite supportive of what the academies could do for developing countries. So we were embedded in developing countries a long time ago, uh, as is, you know, we are today. So you were you're very ahead of your time because um, measurement to you was really important. And um, it sounds like you had a precise way of going about it. And I'm sure our listeners would love to know what was your approach and also how do you fund it? I mean, is this a line item in your budget? So um, the the measurement is is constantly evolving. Um, so when when the network academies first started, it was designed. Uh, and people were focused on how many people would come into you know the number of students. Right, first how many are registered, and then how many are actually taking the courses. Over time, that evolves. Once you're not worried about getting people to the course, you really have to get down to the business of what are they doing in the course and what are they doing with the course and how has this course impacted their lives? And so we really embarked on finding the right way to measure, um, you know, a correlation between the academy program graduates and then jobs and using the Penn State methodology of how they do it, we were able to identify that, you know, in a 10-year span from 2005 to 2015, over 1.4 million jobs were attained that they associated that the person who actually got the job associated with uh, having taken the academy course. Now, 
I think that they probably did a lot of other things as well. You don't just get a, a job because you have one technical skill. You get a job because there are other things you learn in the academy program, like collaboration and teamwork, um, you know, critical thinking. The 21st century skills that we're all, you know, so focused on today uh, is built into that. And I think that that was another part of it. And then just the the whole network of other people who've gone through this course with you. Uh, and I think that the, the dawn of social media not just as an idea, but as a, a tool that's interwoven into people's daily lives in terms of how they learn, how they work, how they communicate, has actually helped that process. Ah, and do you have, I'm just curious about how you um, support it with resources. Is this a full-time job for one of your colleagues or a portion of their remit? So the academy program actually has about, I would say, a hundred or so number of people. They're not all employees because we do some outside services and partnerships. Uh, but it is a full-time job because uh, this is the difference between doing something on the side and making a core part of the company. As you asked earlier, uh, is it a line item in the budget? Absolutely. Uh, we have a budget uh, and we... Uh, I don't know if you want me to share this story, but Cisco actually made an equity investment in a company uh, as we were growing. And over time, our missions were diverging a little bit. And so we decided that we shouldn't um, hold stock in that company. Uh, and so what we did was we divested. Well, over that period of time, that um, million-dollar investment turned into a $65 million return. So with that $65 million, ah. <laughs> we endowed the Cisco Foundation. So that was just one piece ah. of uh, the CSR component. And then with the Network Academy program, um, and, and the story behind the Network Academy program is, is that uh, when we went from a direct sales organization and sell, sold and serviced through partners, uh, we were so focused on taking care of the customer uh, that we came up with a program called CCIE which was Cisco Certified Internet Engineer. And that certificate stayed with the person. Whoever got it, it stayed with them. It didn't stay with the company. So as people mm -hmm. were getting their certifications, they were being recruited by each other, you know, other, other, other partners of ours. And that's when we realized that there was a real opportunity here because there was a dearth of people who <laughs> had expertise in this area. And it was uh, 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 John Morgridge. I'm sure you, I don't know if you know who he is, but he was uh, uh, two CEOs ago. Uh, decided that this was something that we should invest in. And it was over a period of time that every CEO since has been investing in this program because they see firsthand the impact that it has. This sounds like, uh, is Networking Academy your favorite, favorite project in your 30-year career? <laughs> yeah, I've had many favorite projects and I'm sure um, my favorite project um, is right around the corner as well. But I, what I will tell you is, ah, is that um, the Network Academies has been very important, but so has the work that the Cisco Foundation has done. So what we have is an organization called Public public benefit investment. So if you were to look at how we do business, which is that we have a relationship with the customer, but we also have uh, a plethora of partners who help us in the care and feeding and partnership with our customers. And if you think about us wanting to impact individuals in a positive way, there is an ecosystem of NGOs and universities, academics, other companies who also uh, could be part of the ecosystem. 
And so what we decided was, is that we wanted to look at key issue areas around critical human needs, education, uh, and economic and, you know, empowerment. So if you look at those areas, and then, of course, disasters and things like that are, are things that are always on our mind. Um, but if you were to look at, let's say that we lived in a, a utopian world where there were no disasters, and you look at those key areas, what we wanted to do is, is how do we look at our partnerships with the NGOs, not as a grantor? grantee relationship, but really as an investment, because they have a purpose that is important and aligned to our purpose. And how do we bring that together? So that's why we call it public benefit investment. And we also take a venture, uh, you know, a venture model in terms of where we invest. So if you look at uh, what we call four phases of innovation, uh, NGOs are as innovative as companies, but their their purpose is a little different and their focus and their customer base may be a little different than your common, you know, business or traditional business. But they have an idea. And so that would be phase one. They come up with an idea and then they want to work with us in developing that idea. Phase two is actually doing the pilots and, and you know, taking it and testing it out to see if it can scale. Phase three is when you're ready just to scale it. And phase four is you find a uh, self-sustainability mechanism, whether it's revenues or some other way, uh, in order to continue this process. Uh, most people, including us in the early days, would focus on phase three. Somebody else has done all the investment, done all the testing, ironed out the kinks, and now it's about, you know, to be able to scale. Uh, but what we found is, is that we were told it with, from our partners that we had a unique differentiator, which is that we're a tech company with a higher risk tolerance. We're uh, very comfortable in joint innovation and collaboration. And so we pivoted. We still do stay, uh, phase three investment, but we really pivoted toward the early stages. And we look at this as a venture investment, except the return is not return in dollars, but really a return in impact. Uh, and that served us well. We're very proud of that piece of it because a lot of really wonderful organizations have come through here. And it's it's very um, not just organic, but it's also real in the sense that we call out when things are not working and how do we make course corrections? We don't wait till the end of a, a grant cycle and say, okay, how did you did, do last year? Uh, we work with them and in the same way that we do in our business in a very agile way, we can go back and, you know, reset, uh, change course, what it, whatever it is that we need to do collectively to get to uh, the outcomes. That's extraordinary. I mean, you're running your relationships with your not-for-profits as a business relationship, not a handout but a partnership to, to scale and have impact. That, that's uh, your return on impact, not just dollars. It's, it's extraordinary. Um, I'd like to get back to um, the networking academy because it is, your, it is your, you know, the centerpiece. And how do you keep it relevant? How do you keep it fresh? So that, you know, I know when I've worked with so many companies and, you know, five years into a program or eight years, and then, you know, some new executive comes in and goes, ah, throw it out. We need something new. So how do you keep it growing? And so, relevant? you know, it's, I, I kind of look at the market. And when you think about the market taking care of itself, lots of times, you know, if 
a product or a service is no longer relevant. You no longer have customers. And so we take that same approach is how do we continue to be relevant? We have some learning scientists. We have people who do deep research. We keep um, re- tight relationships with universities because if you think about network academies uh, in the U.S., it's taught in community colleges and uh, high schools. Outside the U.S., they're taught in universities, but they're also in prisons. Um, and they're, you know, at one point we had it at a homeless shelter. So it's, it's, you know, we try it in different places to see if it, if it, you know, resonates and has impact. Uh, and then we also work with our instructor base, our instructor community. It's probably, uh, one of the most important stakeholders that we have because they are the ones who give us, uh, direct feedback in addition to what the students tell us about what they've done in the delivery of the curriculum that makes it more impactful, challenges that they've had. Uh, and, you know, it's a combination of the technology telling, telling us what's happening, but it's also the human piece of it. And you have to bring those two together. Uh, so that's a, that's a really critical component. Um, we actually about, I would say, maybe 10 years ago, we looked at refreshing the Network Academy program. Uh, and was it, and the first question we asked was how, not how do we refresh it, but we asked, is this still relevant? Because when we started the program, there were not a lot of programs like it. Since then, of course, you know, tons of programs have come out. And we asked ourselves, is this still relevant in light of that? Because that's the kind of decision you make as, as any company is where do you invest your, your dollars? Are there other things that we can do? And it was the students, the instructors, and also the impact it had in countries uh, that really reinforced that we could uh, reinvest in it. So uh, we're very focused on that. And we also do uh, three to five year long range planning. Uh, knowing that, you know, with new technologies emerging and new trends and new demands in the market that we would need to adjust. But it's really looking at the big picture and being very vigilant about the metrics. You're, you're very vigilant about that. Um, I know that your role also encompasses sustainability um, and you've won tens of awards uh, for your work. Can you share a bit about how sustainability is part of uh, your CSR work and how it's integrated? So sustainability is really a beautiful example in terms of integration into the business because the awards that you just mentioned were won by the company and and the employees in the company. Uh, what we did was is we really looked at over the course of the last, I don't know, 15 years is is what role does this have and how do you break it down in a way that you can operate it? Right. It's it's great to have the big vision and we all have that. But how do you then make it operational so that it's not just people who are constantly talking about it, but you have systems in place who do that? Uh, We had made a decision that we didn't want to have just, you know, an organization whose job was sustainability. The reality is it needs to be integrated into the business and should be actualized at every level. Uh, so we took the sustainability piece and said, what are the things that we are going to measure? So we created um, a cycle and the cycle starts with us, which is that we do stakeholder engagement, do the market assessment. What are we, we what's being required of us? What are we hearing from our customers uh, in terms of flow downs? What are we doing in terms of our partners and identify the key things that we should focus on? 
Uh, and then what we do is we have a meeting with the businesses and everybody takes their components. So if you look at people, society, and the planet, um, you know, the people piece spans everybody, uh, but the human resources role is front and center in the sense that yeah, you, you measure the, the inclusive nature of people who can, you know, who are able to sit at the table, not just sit at the table, but eat well, right, and thrive. Uh, and, but there's also a human component, a people piece with our supply chain. Because we have suppliers and we want to ensure that uh, the, the conditions are right, that people can actually, um, you know, call an ethics uh, violation, call for help, all the things that you offer to your employee base with, that you manage. Uh, we wanted to ensure that there, that component was working as well. So it wasn't just one organization. Uh, and so what we did was we went to the respective business units and everybody selected the things that they were responsible for. And the business determined what are the one, two, top one or two things that you want to accomplish this year. And then they operated it. So for our group, in addition to the to the front end, which is the stakeholder engagement and, you know, assessing what we needed to do, uh, we operated the social aspect, the society piece. Um, but everybody had a role to play. And then at the end of the year, we measure the impact and then we report it out and the circle is complete. Uh, and I think that is a way of ensuring that you have individual and group ownership of something that is so important, such as sustainability. Another area of focus for you is fostering entrepreneurship mm, yes. to create jobs and economic opportunity and solve global problems. I know you're really proud of the work in this area. Can you just share with us a bit of um, your programs and their impacts? So this is a this is a really important program to us because of the fact that it's the changing nature of jobs, right? The future of jobs. We've done some serious research, deep research. All research is serious. So let me rephrase that. Uh, we we did some deep research with Oxford Economics and um, and other organizations to really uh, to really look at what are the skills and the jobs of the future, knowing that. Uh, jobs as we know it today won't exist. How people work will change. Um, and the few, some jobs we have never even thought of yet. Uh, so how do you navigate in this kind of an environment? Well, the best way is, is to empower individuals so that they are, first of all, able to kind of continuously learn or perpetually learn, as I like to say. And so if you're perpetually learning, then you're always looking at what is happening in the marketplace and what are the skills that I need to do and how do I continue to get my skills up? And if we do that, it means that we have to continue to do our research. We have to continue to work with leading um, institutions. Uh, we have decided with certain programs that we want to work with state universities because they have a matriculation system with community colleges, and that's where the middle class is, is going to come from. And so we wanted to position ourselves that we could we could uh, have impact with the largest population uh, of people who are going to be entering the workforce. We are, you know, we were born out of Stanford. We're big fans of Harvard and Stanford and, and a lot of these uh, globally well-known institutions but we also uh, would like we like to balance that with uh, where where the people are going to come from, and a lot of them will come out. Oh, of that's that. great! Yeah. So that's great. Uh, state we, universities, yes. State universities and community colleges. We're big fans of those. Uh, and then, how do we uh, work together to really look at key things that need to happen? Uh, 
And so we have a series of projects, but one of the things that we decided was is the sooner we get to people, the better off we are. So you don't wait till high school uh, in order to get to the academy program, for instance. How do we create uh, an ability for learners to build this innovation entrepreneurial muscle and then continue to exercise it throughout their lives. So we came up with this little animated series called GPS the Series. Uh, and the, and it was designed because we also understand that a teacher's day is very structured. There's some things that they absolutely have to get done. So trying to introduce, you know, a 260-hour curriculum, 280-hour curriculum like Network Academies is not always feasible uh, in somebody's day. So how do we create things that are interesting to the learner and interesting to the teacher? And that's where the animation series came. So it's uh, an episode is two to three minutes. Uh, and the first series may have like seven episodes. So it enables uh, a teacher or an instructor to take a break from what they're working on, uh, be able to, you know, run this this course and have the conversation that comes after it. There's a teacher's guide, um, ideas on how you can create competitions locally. And uh, we and we work with the Arizona State University and some of their programs um, and uh, an organization that was working on it said that what they found was that students who were normally not interested in the traditional classroom actually uh, perked up when it came to this. And they were some of the ones who were, uh, you know, very leading in terms of ideas on how to solve a problem in their community. And that's ultimately what you want is people to be able to solve problems. And so that's one of the ways that we do this. Another way at, at a much um, more advanced age, you know, the ripe old age of uh, 20, um, we, we think that there are, there are ways to, to, I know, I'm well beyond that, obviously. I know. Um, yeah. But, yeah. you know, to be able to uh, take a business idea, how do you put a business plan together? How do you take an idea to market? And that's where our global problem solver mm-hmm. challenges came from. And, and this is basically uh, a call to action for students uh, in around the world to come up with a problem that you are going to solve using uh, digital solutions and, and be able to pitch that. And so, you know, you meet some of the most fascinating, talented people and and it, it just excites you because of what the possibilities are about the future and knowing that it's in good hands. That's really comforting. How do you how do you stay on top of uh, sustainability and CSR? Um, you know, do you um, have a secret to what you're reading or scanning or blogs you follow or books or maybe you don't? You just watch Harry Potter as I do. Um, actually, um, I'm a very social person, so I talk, but not necessarily social media. I actually talk to people like face to face. I do quite a bit of traveling uh, because nothing is more important than direct experience. So I do a lot of that. Um, We all stay on top of what's happening in the marketplace. Obviously, we stay on top of the technology. uh, And with the technology is how do you steward that in a way that has positive impact on people? Uh, So we stay on top of that. Um, We have a research department 
when we really look at that, we go through a list of things we're working on. And then when you do long range planning, there is, you know, you have to be in touch with what's happening. So there's a lot of things. Um, I feel like there are so many people with such deep knowledge uh, that sometimes they just don't get heard. And when you find these, these gems, uh, you know, you, you glob onto them and you continue to communicate with them and then create an environment where they can give you feedback. Like, I don't really like, you know, a hypothesis is something you prove or disprove. Um, and it's great to run these um, by some of these thought leaders and, and people who are working in this space. Some of them are public sector people who, you know, they get into office and think, wow, okay, there's a lot of work. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of work to be done. It's not what I thought it was, right? It, it also gives you empathy, I think. Um, and, and forces you to be a direct participant. It's so easy to sit back and say, well, so-and-so needs to do this, or why isn't, you know, why isn't, um, this organization doing that? But it, it gives you empathy toward the jobs that other people have. So I get it from all places. Um, no, no one, no one particular way. I also hire people who I think are always on top of their game. I have a philosophy, which is that, um, if there's something that you care about so deeply, find somebody who cares about it a little bit more and 80% of the time they'll make the right decisions. So we always love to ask our guests, what are three-ish, maybe four um, insights that you'd love to share with them um, on their purpose journey? I, I think the first thing is um, curiosity and critical thinking. That's to me, it's it's so easy, especially if you've been part of a successful organization to continue to do what you're doing, being really curious about, OK, it might have worked in this environment, but will it work if if, you know, the tides change? Is it still solid then? So constantly being curious about, you know, your your intended purpose and then the reality of that intended purpose uh, in a changing environment. So it'd be curiosity and, and critical thinking. Um, I think the second thing is empathy. I feel that some of the best things that have been invented have been based on empathy. And it's not necessarily empathy of a person, but it could be empathy of a user's experience, for instance. But empathy is is, is so, um, so powerful uh, and it's hard to pin down, right? It's not a, empathy is a science, but it was never seen as a science. So I think that empathy is really, really important. And, and then the third is just be open because um, I've always felt that if I had all the answers, then why do I need other people? And the reality is you don't have all the answers. Um, and, and, and you don't. Uh, and, 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 you know, and, and maybe it's humility, combine that with humility of knowing what your own limitations are. Um, and then the last piece is really self-awareness. Um, I can have a, a, a discourse with someone who is completely opposed to everything I believe in. But if they are self-aware, you can have an authentic conversation, even though you don't agree. It's when people are not self-aware and they are talking about something that they, that they, that, that people, other people see that you don't really believe that, or you don't really know enough about it. You're just parroting somebody else's comments. If somebody authentically feels that way, you can have a meaningful discourse with them. So, um, you know, self-awareness is really, really important. Okay. So I'd love to ask you, who do you admire outside of, obviously you love all the programs and your colleagues at Cisco, but what other companies, it doesn't have to be a tech firm, 
um, that you admire for their global or their, you know, regional CSR work? I actually um, love Starbucks, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> I do. I do too. I love and, Starbucks, and I, I, I'll tell you I why. Do. Because if you every time I, I I think I know Starbucks, and then every time you peel back a layer, I learn something else. And by the way, I don't just I drink Starbucks, but that's not the only coffee I drink. I drink a lot of, of different kinds of coffee, so it's not because of the product. To be honest with you, although I love the product, right? Um, but just when I think. Um, I know who they are. You peel back the onion and you find something else. So if you if you look at Starbucks and and it's not just about social responsibility, it's their purpose. If you look at what they do for their employees, they come in, they have set up an ability for people who work at Starbucks to go and get their education. So they have a partner with ASU, Arizona State University. Um, and why I think ASU is interesting is, is because, you know, most universities exclude people, right? You, they filter people out just because of sheer numbers, that, that, that finite number of people they can take. ASU has the opposite, which is they want to be inclusive and bring more people in. Now, to do that, you need to use the technology, which they do. But they have a partnership with Starbucks. Um, Starbucks will create a generation of, of people who, who've been through the Starbucks process, who will go on you know, to build companies, you know, solve problems, you know, who knows what the possibilities are. So I, I love them for that piece of it, because at the end of the day, we are as good as the people that we have. And that's what they're engendering. I also like the fact that, you know, they've made mistakes as all corporate, you, you're not around for a long period of time and say that you've never made mistakes, but they seem to um, come together and figure those out. I'm not saying they're a perfect company, but from where I sit and what I've observed and the, and the organizations that I've talked to, um, I, I would say I really admire them. And they're pervasive, which means that, you know, they're everywhere. And, and that, can, that can be very helpful for people to find themselves in an organization like that. Yeah, I, I know that I, I'm in total agreement with you because I know that Howard said, how can I ask my people to advocate for my brand? If I don't advocate for them, and um, it, it it's it's a case that I like I did a little bit of work early in 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 the early cone years, and um, the innovation that they constantly bring uh, to their people uh, just makes for an amazing brand and amazing culture, no matter where they are in the world. So it's, so it's very powerful. Anybody else that you really admire? There's so many, actually. I mean, we part we partnered with Microsoft. Um, you know, there's a there's a lot of organizations. Intel has been a great partner as well. I mean, one of the things that we we decided was that we were going to come together uh, and collaborate on areas that we care about, and and they've been fantastic partners. Um, usually, our long term partnerships are are, are amazing because you don't partner with people you don't admire, right? There you go. That, that's really good. So, unfortunately, we're at the bottom of our show, but I always like to ask my guests. What haven't I asked you? What would you like to just talk about before we have to go? Well, you didn't ask me, um, will there be a day when we don't have to have a CSR organization? That's a good one. And do you think there will be? I think if you uh, heard Chuck Robbins' uh, interview, he and I both believe that, that someday if we, get, if we do our jobs right, that it doesn't have to be... Uh, you know, an organization that does it because every single person does it. You have shared such amazing um, advice and insights that I know that there will be a lot of people, whether they're in companies or they're just learning about um, this profession that we're in, 
that they will be so, so thankful for, you know, what you talked about. Um, I love that, you know, you talked about return um, on impact uh, for your NGO partnerships, not just dollars. I also love the part that you said that people are unknowing and that if you work with them and you educate them and you talk with them about the power of what you have done, that they can understand uh, that this is about strategy and this is about business and social impact. So I want to thank you for your time. Um, I will continue to be one of the biggest fans of your work and your organization. And um, I just want to ask our listeners to think about all that you have done, taken the business side and applied it to so many giant problems and scaling NGOs. And then I want to ask them, what is your purpose? 